throughout history, humans have, from the dawn of time, our species has... <laughs> Let's start over. Human history is a loaded topic. For one thing, it's about 300,000 years long, and 99% of it took place without any writing. So everything we thought we knew seems to keep getting upended. There's a lot about the arc of prehistory that we still don't know. What we do know is the arc of today. And everywhere we look, it seems to have become a story of inequality. It's on the lips of politicians, technocrats, and protesters around the globe. I think that inequalities may be entrenched. And we need to make sure that as we recover, we level up across our societies and we, we build back better. Increasing inequality is most pronounced in our country. I believe this is the defining challenge of our time. At some point, somehow, it all went wrong and humanity ended up on this timeline of inequality. But what if that's not what happened? What would a different story about the past tell us about the possibilities of the future? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking today with David Wingrow, co-author of the best-selling book, The Dawn of Everything. He wrote it with the late David Graeber, who, among many other things, helped coin Occupy Wall Street's slogan, We Are the 99%. Graeber was an anthropologist. Wingrow is an archaeologist. And their book was 10 years in the making. Your book, The Dawn of Everything, sets out to set the record straight on everything we thought we knew about the past and the present and maybe the future. It critiques a genre that some people call big history, which is this sky-high view of humanity starting all the way back into the time before written records. So let's start with that mainstream version of big history. What is it? If you go to books of the kind that you're describing, with the exception of our book, you'll find that most of them are not written by archaeologists. The overall story that you get about human prehistory is often a very familiar one. It goes back to a time before archaeology even existed as a discipline. And it begins usually with humans, all of us living in small egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers, and very little going on. To explain this, we got a little help from YouTube. There's people on the planet, and they're chasing their food. And in fact, nothing much is supposed to have happened in this conventional story until everything changes. Time to plant some grass. Look at this. I control the food now. And what changes everything is the invention of farming and agriculture. Guess what happens next? More food and more people who came to buy the food. Now you need people to help make the food and keep track of the sales. And after that, nothing is supposed to work the way that it worked before. There's more farming and more people to make more things for more people. And now there's business, money, writing, laws, power, society. And the rest of the human story is one of how we became two things at the same time. On the one hand, more complex and organized in more sophisticated ways, more technology. But on the other hand, how we also lost that original 
state of freedom and equality. And with every step we took towards complexity, we became more unequal. That complexity is what's thought to have given rise to cities, kingdoms, and eventually the state. And the basic idea is that the origins of the state is very bad for some people who become peasants and serfs, but rather nice for other people who are liberated from the toil of agriculture and can become professionals, warriors, philosophers, artists. So civilization, as we're taught to think of the concept, is this strange double-edged sword. And I think that, in a nutshell, is the conventional view of the broad sweep of human history that we've had until now. But as I say, it actually bears almost no resemblance to the facts of archaeology and anthropology. So much of this history surrounds the idea and the impact of social inequality. So it doesn't seem that controversial to ask, what are the origins of social inequality? But as you write in the book, that question has a lot of assumptions that are baked into it. So what are they? Well, let's look at it from just a purely logical point of view. If you begin human history with that question, what are the origins of inequality? You're already making a very large assumption which is that before inequality, there was something else. In other words, that it had an origin and that there was some kind of primordial society of equals. What is the evidence for that? It's really just an assumption. The development of farming is often considered in big histories to be kind of an original sin. It's been called our biggest mistake as a species, the moment we got trapped. Here's author Yuval Noah Harari. The agricultural revolution was the biggest fraud in history. Peasants in ancient civilizations had much harder lives than their hunter-gatherer ancestors. This ape had been living a pretty comfortable life, hunting and gathering, but then was enslaved by wheat. What Wingrove says is that the evidence we have today from around the world of life before agriculture shows that it really wasn't one moment at all. The transition to agriculture is now thought to have taken around 3,000 years in multiple independent locations. The idea of one agricultural revolution with one set of consequences, he says, is just kind of out of touch. We find there's no evidence that people stumbled into agriculture and were then stuck with the consequences. Actually, what we have is evidence for people in different parts of the world trying it on for size, trying out farming, but also keeping on with hunting, fishing, gathering, coming up with different funky combinations of all these things, stepping into agriculture, then stepping out again. Basically something much more playful and experimental and much more conscious. By digging into the archaeological record across civilizations, the book stitches together counterexamples that show an entirely different picture of humanity. That might be hunter-gatherers who were not egalitarian, but hierarchical, and who even engaged in slavery. Or a massive pre-modern city with expansive public housing and no hierarchical art of any kind. Regardless whether you're looking at Japan or the Americas, or Europe in the last ice age, you see something far more interesting and far more human, which is people 
just like us, grappling with all the paradoxes of human existence, trying out different kinds of society, different kinds of economic and political systems. It was all going on before farming. So it no longer makes a great deal of sense, in the light of all that evidence, to begin the human story with a question like, what is the origin of inequality? What is the origin of private property? Because all of those things were there from the beginning. There's also counter-evidence in the written historical record. Take the people of Tlaxcala, who played an integral role in the Spanish colonization of the Americas. It's one of the cities that Hernán Cortés visited on his way to conquer, eventually, the Aztec Empire. Hernán Cortés is the conquistador, or conqueror, who opened the door for centuries of Spanish rule of what is now Mexico, when he overthrew the Aztec Empire in 1521. The Aztecs were one of the major civilizations in the history of the Americas. They were highly hierarchical and hated by many of their neighbors, which gave Cortés an opening. He forms an alliance with the city of Tlaxcala, which provides him with, I believe it was 20,000 warriors. And without those warriors, there's no way that Cortés could have overthrown the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. So we're talking here about the beginnings of European imperialism. This is an event of world historical importance. But if you read most descriptions of that episode of history, they don't mention the fact that Tlaxcala was actually a kind of democracy, a republic. It's just sort of breezed over. As Wengro tells the story, when Cortés got to Tlaxcala, he went looking for its king. Except there wasn't a king, and he was told to wait outside the city. Wait outside the city while we deliberate. And the we is a council. It's a parliament. We have detailed accounts of this by Spanish colonial historians who went back and interviewed these people just a generation after it all happened. And we even have details of some of the speeches they were giving as they were debating whether to side with the Spaniards or not, which are actually quite funny, some of their comments and observations about how unhygienic they are and they sleep in their clothes and they've got these dreadful beasts, you know, the horses. And you'd have thought this was important. I mean, not just for the history of the Americas, but for the history of democracy, for the history of the whole world. And what was also unusual there was not just that it was a republic, but the way in which politicians came to power. In order to take up a seat in the parliament of Tlaxcala, a politician had to go through this incredible series of rituals where they would basically get abused So the individual had to, I think, first go out for a long session of public abuse where people would put them down and sort of shatter their ego. And then they had to go into a kind of solitary confinement and go through these painful bloodletting rituals. And this would go on for months until eventually the person was released back into society as a politician with their ego completely flattened so that they would be a good public servant and would not put themselves before the people. It was almost exactly the opposite of what we've come to expect (laughs) from our politicians today, where it's all about winning votes by virtue of, look at me, Look how charismatic I am. I've got all the answers kind of thing. These people had it figured out to the extent that 
if you were going to be a public servant, they made sure that these people really were going to be servants as opposed to miniature versions of kings or dictators. But it's the legacy of colonial conquests, not indigenous republics, that casts a long shadow on history. And the dawn of everything argues it's that tension between indigenous societies and their colonizers that's ultimately responsible for the conventional view of history. You know, the one written by the winners. In the 18th century, questions in France and Europe were circulating about the nature of freedom and equality. According to the dawn of everything, they were questions that hadn't really been asked before, at least not before France started colonizing indigenous societies that had freedom and equality in much larger quantities. They looked at Europeans and said, basically, how can you live like that? And Europeans sent these critiques home in travel logs. The most famous at that time came from a man named Kandiarank, an indigenous leader from today's eastern North America. Kandiarank was certainly a famous member of his nation, the Huron-Wendat nation. This is somebody who was deeply embroiled in the military and economic negotiations that were going on. It was incredibly complicated. You had the English and the French. You had different Iroquois-speaking peoples and nations. And he was right in the middle of all that. And we have numerous accounts that tell us that he was also an incredibly good speaker. He was able to outwit the smartest orators among the French at that time who would invite him as a sort of friendly competition. Just listen to this man and how brilliant he is when he dissects Christianity (laughs) or takes us to task over divorce or sexual habits or whatever it may be. What I wouldn't give to have been there. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, somebody was there and he he wrote a lot of this stuff down and it it turned into a best-selling book in Europe right at the start of the 18th century. Dialogues with a wise savage, as he calls it. And a lot of it is also about freedom. And fascinated by the way that Europeans will just obey orders from each other on the basis of rank. Why does somebody get to boss you around all the time? And why do you take it from them? Here's one quote, just as a sample, about his Wendat tribe's opposition to using money and the idea of mine and yours what he calls mine and thine. I have spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that's not inhuman. And I genuinely think that this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls, and the slaughterhouse of the living. To imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. As Wingrow and Graeber write in the book, for Europeans in 1703, this was heady stuff. And that's what made it a bestseller in its day. It continued to be printed for over a century. It was widely observed that although they had chiefs, the chief's power was, as one writer put it, in his tongue, in other words, his powers of persuasion, because nobody was obliged to actually do what you told them. And this was the basis of a culture of participatory democracy and debate, out of which Kandiyarong came. 
And that's where we return to the story of big history, that as societies get more complex, they get less free. Wingro says that the story ultimately took hold as a counter-argument to this indigenous critique. The effect of that story, which we're still dealing with today, is basically to say that indigenous peoples, while they may have certain points of view, certain perspectives on how we govern ourselves, are simply not relevant. They are effectively relics of some earlier phase of human existence, almost as if they were living today and yet living in the Stone Age. So it took all of these outside perspectives on European civilization, and it pushed them down to the bottom of an evolutionary ladder. But taking those perspectives into account, Wengro says, is what allowed him and Graeber to move beyond the idea that human history was inevitable and take a fresh look at ancient societies, not as childlike innocents, but as equals with more imagination. For us, it really opened up perspectives and it helped us to begin to understand and interpret a lot of this rich archaeological evidence from other regions and other parts of history. It's fascinating. Professor, we cannot have this conversation without talking about your co-author. This was 10 years in the making. So let's talk about the late, great David Graeber, who died suddenly last year at the age of 59. I had the chance to interview him along with the producer of this show, Alexandra Locke, early in the months of the pandemic. And we were both so struck by how different his view of the world is from what so many of us have been taught mm. all of our lives. So when you two met, was it an immediate meeting of minds or was it an immediate debate? What happened? I think we we did probably what is in both of our natures. When you meet, when you meet another academic who knows something you're interested in, you immediately try to download that bit of their brain, <laughs> sort of steal what's in it. And quite often that's all over fairly quickly. But with David, he quickly realized, okay, wow, this is a bottomless pit. I mean, this guy <laughs> is so widely read and so intelligent. And he very generously used to say the, the same about me. And it's strange because David was a a famous anthropologist. I'm an archaeologist. And these are two subjects which are closely related. But what we discovered actually was that people in our disciplines really hadn't been communicating. And in that way, it was really just a sort of meeting of minds of, of two curious people trying to catch each other up and then slowly realizing that that was a little bit self-indulgent and maybe we ought to catch up everybody else as well. <laughs> And it was Graeber who coined the title a few years before his death. After David passed away, I basically insisted that we use that one, which he didn't think we'd be allowed to because it was <laughs> too over the top. He thought the publishers would balk at it. But what choice did they have at that point? Right. And I think he was right. I think it, it's really captured, it's captured the spirit of the book in a way that, that readers seem to be relating to. Mm -hmm. So he knew what he was doing. So as a final question, looking at the world today, we see that democracy is either faltering or it's under attack in so many places. And the alternative often seems to be authoritarianism in some form. Is that a failure of imagination? And maybe a broader way of asking that is if the vast 
majority of human history hasn't been organized this way into states, and states aren't inevitable, why are they everywhere? Well, I think that those are two questions, really. The second one, why is the world covered with states that roughly resemble European ones? We know the answer to that. It's not some great mystery. You don't have to go back to ancient Egypt to explain it. The answer to that, briefly, is empire, colonialism, and genocide. The real question, I think, for people who make that point is, why do you insist on trying to come up with some much more convoluted explanation where we have to go back to the agricultural revolution? There is no, as we discuss in our book, there is no convincing case to be made that the states we live in are descended from something that goes back thousands and thousands of years. So I don't really think there's a, a mystery there unless you want to think of it in that way. The other question you ask is about democracy. And, and I think the way that we're taught to think about living in democracy is that we're very privileged to live in a democracy. Democracy is this very rare thing. It's very historically unusual. Some Greek guys invented it a couple of thousand, whatever years ago. Mm -hmm. And how lucky we are that we've rediscovered it, even if we get it wrong most of the time. And our democracies are a bit corrupt and dysfunctional and people don't vote and whatever. At least it's better than the alternative, as you say, which is also kind of a strange way of, of looking at human history. If we accept that people weren't living in authoritarian regimes for most of human history, because there's no evidence for them beyond about 5,000 years ago, how do you think they were organizing themselves? I mean, okay, you can find many reasons not to call something a democracy, but why not occasionally consider whether there actually were or still are other styles of democracy to our own? I mean, if you look to ancient Greece as your template, you're talking about 5th century Athens, which was a slaveholding society that systematically excluded women from politics. And that's our prototype for our democracies. Wow. I mean, it's no wonder we're a bit confused. So if we're going to allow the Greeks off the hook, uh, why not look at all these other examples of people collectively making decisions in various ways? Why not call that democracy and, and maybe even give it a try, as opposed to the kind of electoral systems we have? Is it the only way of appointing people to represent us? Have we really tried everything else? Do we have to rush to the conclusion that the only alternative is some kind of totalitarianism? Or is that simply what we've been telling ourselves, telling our children, going round in circles? What would happen if we wrote the history books a bit differently, with a bit more attention to the evidence? And that's The Take. If you haven't listened to our conversation with David Graeber about essential work in the age of the pandemic, we've linked it in the episode description. It's one of my favorites, so check it out. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Benton is our editor. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And the history song you heard at the beginning of the show is called History of the Entire World, I Guess, by Bill Wirtz. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>